Machinus is used 29 times, and almost every time it is translated as simply servant or minister. As believers, we all follow in the footsteps of the ultimate deacon, the suffering servant who came not to be deaconed, but to deacon and to give his life as a ransom for many. When the church was first established, there were only two official offices within the church, pastors and deacons. And so let's explore who deacons are and why they are a blessing to the church. Good morning. That uh, last song reminded me just how often, sometimes we come in here and we're just excited and we sing that song and and uh, it's just so meaningful. But other times we come in here and the world has just been discouraging all week and we sing that song and it's more like, God, help me feel this way. <laughs> help my heart believe. And I, my, my prayer this whole week, because I know that it seems like there is so many things in our world right now that are discouraging. My prayer for myself and, and for our church this week has just simply been, Lord, renew the joy of our salvation. Uh, I think that our world, there's so many things in our world that steal our joy. And so this morning, as we take one more week looking at deacons, uh, I hope that what we will see here is deacons are a huge and a significant blessing to the church. So last week, we started this two-week short mini-series on deacons, and last week, the, the, the focus was on the, the origin of deacons and the purpose of deacons. And we looked at Acts chapter 6. And so go ahead, just as a, for a quick review. And in fact, if you weren't here, this would be good for you to, to catch up with. Anyhow, go to Acts chapter 6 just for a minute. And I want to I take a look at a few things in there. And, and our goal with this also is just to, to clarify what deacons are and, and who can be a deacon and, and how they're a blessing to the church. I think there's a whole lot of misunderstandings. And so last week as we looked at Acts chapter 6, we saw that one of the purposes of deacons is just simply to unify the church. They had their first internal conflict, and, and so deploying deacons helped to solve that conflict. There, there was unity that happened because of that. They also helped to meet tangible needs within the church so that the elders and the pastors can be freed up to focus on the spiritual needs of the congregation. We saw that they're servant leaders, and ultimately they mirror Christ, the ultimate deacon. In Acts chapter 6, we saw that the result of the church deploying these deacons was that the word spread and, and many people came to the faith. And we also saw last week a hint of the qualifications of deacons, which is what we're going to be focusing on this week. We saw last week that they were supposed to pick out seven men of good repute, full of the Spirit and wisdom. And who is the first name that was mentioned out of the seven? It was Stephen, a man of faith and of the Holy Spirit, the text says. And then if we go to the next part of the chapter, the, next, the rest of the chapter, uh, if you thought, if you had in your mind originally that like deacons are, okay, really good with their hands, they're good at physical stuff, but they're not really necessarily spiritual people, you had it wrong, okay? <laughs> this is the, the rest of chapter 6. Let me just read this, starting in verse 8. And Stephen, 
full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. Then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, and the Cyrenians and the Alexandrians and those from Cilicia and Asia rose up and disputed with Stephen. But they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. Then they secretly instigated men who said, We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes, and they came upon him, and they seized him and brought him before the council. And they set up false witness who said, This man never ceases to speak words against this holy place in the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. And gazing at him... All who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. And I don't know what that means exactly. Maybe your mom or your aunt or somebody said that you used to have the face of an angel. Probably not Wayne, but maybe the rest of you. Um, I don't know exactly know what that means. Regardless, we see in the next chapter that the first deacon, Stephen, becomes the first martyr of the church. And even as he is being stoned, he still reflects the glory of God. Let me read just the last part of chapter 7. Listen to Luke's account as Stephen is being stoned. We read this starting in verse 54 of chapter 7. Now when they heard these things, and so he had just gotten done sharing the gospel through the Old Testament. Okay, He walks through a big chunk of the Old Testament and he shares the gospel. And then at the, this is what happens. Now when he had, they had heard these things, they were enraged and they ground their teeth at him, but he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven, and he saw the glory of God, and Jesus standing at the right hand of the God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens opened, and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice, and stopped their ears, and rushed together at him. Then they cast him out of the city, and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. Yep, that's the same Saul that would eventually become Paul. Lord Jesus, receive my spirit, Stephen says. And falling on his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. He died. So Stephen, the first deacon, the first martyr was a man who reflected the mercy and the forgiveness of Christ till his last breath. And in the early church, deacons continued to follow in Stephen's footsteps, Jesus's footsteps. Historian Charles DeWeese, and this is coming from this book, Deacons, that, that we've got back here, gives a summary. He says, they visited, talking about deacons in the early church, they visited martyrs who were in prison, they clothed and buried the dead. They looked after the excommunicated with the hope of restoring them. They provided the needs of widows and orphans and visited the sick who were otherwise in distress. In a plague that struck Alexandria about AD 259, deacons were described by an eyewitness as those who, quote, visited the sick fearlessly, ministered to them continually, and died with them most joyfully. Let me give you just one example that Smethurst gives in this book of a, a deacon. This was, the year was 258 AD, and persecution had just broken out in Rome against the Christians. And 
this deacon named Lawrence served in Rome, and his task within the church was to steward the finances of the church and deploy it to those who were poor, distribute it to the poor. And so in August, the news hits that the emperor of Rome, Valerina, had this chilling edict that all the bishops needed to be rounded up, all the, the pastors needed to be rounded up, all the, all the deacons needed to be rounded up and killed. And so it wasn't long after that that Lawrence is arrested. He's brought before the magistrate, but the magistrate gives him an offer. He says, if you release the treasury of the church to me, I'll release you. In other words, you can bribe me. And so he agrees. And he says, just give me three days to collect it. And so he leaves the court very quickly, and he entrusts the money of the church to safe hands. And then he goes, up, goes around, and he rounds up the sick, the aged, the poor, the widows, and the orphans. And he brings them all back to the magistrate. And there's such a commotion, the magistrate is frustrated, and he's like, okay, what's going on here? And, and Lawrence, of course, says, I, sir, I, I've brought what you've asked for. And then he points at this group of people that he's rounded up, and he, he says, this is, these are the treasures of the church. And of course, they sentence him to a, a martyr's death, but this deacon endures the flames with startling calm. In fact, he jokes with his executioners and he says to them, look, I'm done on that side. Go ahead and flip me over. <laughs> well, news spread about his courage and many came, to the, many came to the faith because of him. You see, deacons are difference makers. The office of deacon is a very high calling and I think the qualifications that we're going to read about in 1 Timothy 3 today reflect this. And so go ahead and turn to 1 Timothy 3. I want to give you some context of what, what's going on in this passage. 1 Timothy 3 is written by the Apostle Paul to his disciple Timothy. If, the, if you read the first part of the letter, you'll see that they had this father-son kind of relationship. He, he says to Timothy that you're my true son in the faith. Timothy had traveled with Paul on some of his missionary journeys, and he was sent by Paul to Ephesus uh, to, to pastor there, to lead there, to help them deal with some false teaching, and, and also to set up their leadership. And so the first part of chapter 3, Paul is instructing Timothy on the qualifications of elders or pastors. Your translation probably says bishop uh, or, or uh, overseers. Uh, our, our focus today, though, is going to be on verses 8 through 13, where he lays out the qualifications for deacons. And if you read the qualifications of elders and deacons, you'll, you'll notice that they're almost identical. There's a few differences, and one of the main differences is that elders have the qualifications that they need to be able to teach, where deacons, that's not mentioned in their qualifications. Also, notice the verses right after the list of qualifications. Look at verse 14. Paul says, I hope to come to you soon, but I'm writing these things to you so that... And so here's the purpose of why he's writing these things. He says, so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. And so I bring that up because Paul is writing these things not just to this one single church in the first century, 
Okay, this is not just a cultural thing that these uh, that he's setting up here. He he's saying that these what I'm explaining to you is for us today here at Mercy Hill also. One other thing that I want you to notice about these qualifications before you read them is that none of them are extraordinary. None of them are extraordinary. All of these qualifications are ordinary expectations given to all Christians. In fact, if you read the book of Ephesians, which was written to the same church that Timothy is pastoring, you could find every one of these qualifications in that letter instructed to the whole church. And so none of these are extraordinary expectations. Deacons then are simply faithful Christians who God has granted the faith necessary to rest in his righteousness, so they're not looking for their own righteousness, so that they become extraordinary at doing the ordinary. And so I want you to understand, a deacon is not somebody who can boast. A deacon is not somebody who can boast in in anything that they've accomplished, but they can say, like Paul, but by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace towards me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is within me. And so let's pray that God would raise up deacons in our midst. Father, as we, as we read this passage, uh, I, I pray that our eyes would be opened to see how much of a blessing deacons can be to a church. I pray that through your spirit, Lord, you would raise up more and more with the heart of a deacon within our church. I pray that you would help us believe the gospel, that our faith would be strengthened, that our joy would increase because of your word. And it would be for your glory. Give us wisdom as we seek to deploy deacons here at Mercy Hill. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so we're going to pick up in verse 8, and we're going to walk through this. I'm going to read the whole thing, and then we'll, we'll go back and look at each verse. Deacons, likewise, must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience, and let them also be tested first, then let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. Their wives, likewise, must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their own households well. For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. All right, so let's break this down. Start back in verse 8. Look back in verse 8. Deacons, likewise, must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. And so the word dignified, to be dignified is to have a composure that is well-respected, that's worthy of respect. And so the rest of the qualifications describe what it means to be dignified then, right? And so the first three characteristics that we see here are put negatively, and they all deal with self-control, okay? So not double-tongued is to be in control of your tongue, to be in control of your speech, not speaking out of both sides of your mouth, not saying 
one thing to one group because you know they want to hear it and then speaking something else to a different group because you know they want to hear it. It also means that you're, you're not gossiping. You're, you're not flattering people. You, you control your tongue. Secondly, you're not addicted to much wine. Deacons are not addicted to much wine. It is to be in self-control of your appetite, of not drinking too much alcohol. I don't think this prohibits against all drinking, but it does prohibit against drunkenness. Uh, a deacon should be not enslaved to something that impairs their judgment. Third, not greedy for dishonest gain. Uh, a deacon controls, yes, their speech and their appetite, but also their wallets, right? They're, they, they're not so materialistic that they're looking for the next way to get rich or, or cheat the system. Deacons often have access to the church's finances, and so they need to be trustworthy to steward them well. Verse 9, they must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. And so deacons must, what's that mean? Hold or embrace the mystery of faith or the, the once hidden but now revealed gospel or good news of Jesus Christ with a clear conscience, a conscience that is at peace. So in other words, deacons have a deep-held confidence or faith in the good news that the righteousness of Jesus now belongs to them. So, so now there is no condemnation weighing them down. I think that's what that passage means. They know deep down that they are free from the penalty of sin and that is what, and it's because of Christ, not because of anything that they've done. And that frees them and empowers them to do, to be extraordinary at the ordinary. Okay, so it's this faith that God has granted them that empowers their self-control. It, it tames their tongue. It satisfies their appetite. Because when you are resting in Christ's righteousness, when you're not trying to always prove yourself, it's much easier to hold your tongue. You, you don't feel the need to, to gossip about other people or to flatter people. You, you, you're self-controlled. You, you, you're satisfied, so you don't feel the need to fill some hole in your chest with, with alcohol or, or, or something else. Remember, deacons are those who are full of the Spirit and wisdom, and I think this is what it looks like. I, I think this is what we see in Stephen. And his martyrdom, Stephen held the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience, and that enabled him and empowered him to proclaim the gospel even in the midst of being stoned. Verse 10, and let them also be tested first, then let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. Okay, so like elders or pastors, deacons ought not to be, they should not be new believers. Okay, they need to be tested first. And Paul doesn't give specific instructions on what that looks like. I think churches have freedom and to decide on what's best for them. I don't even think it necessarily has to be some kind of formal process. The, the heart of this passage is this, the church knows the deacons well enough to know their, their character. The word blameless here obviously doesn't mean perfect. If that was the case, Jesus would be the only deacon. The only reason we're blameless is because Christ declares us blameless based on his work, not our work. And so blameless here simply means that they passed the test of public scrutiny. And so they've been tested by the church body. Verse 11, 
Their wives, likewise, must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Okay, so this is where it gets interesting. This is one of the most highly debated passages in Scripture. People that are way smarter than me disagree on the meaning of this passage. Okay, so I'm going to approach this with a whole lot of humility. And you may not agree with my, my assessment, and that's okay. I think this is like a third-tier kind of issue. Uh, but I, wanna, I want you to understand that, uh, first of all, translations, okay, are not always perfect, okay? Uh, our, our translations, especially the modern ones, are, are really, really good, okay? Don't get me wrong. But when you're translating, remember, the inspired text is the original Greek and Hebrew, the, the original manuscripts, right? And sometimes it's hard to translate Greek into English. Sometimes... There's not a specific word that translates directly from a Greek word to an English word. Sometimes, just like in English, there's certain words that have a couple different meanings. For example, in our text today, the word gunekos, gunekos. Okay, so gune is the, the root word, which here is translated as wives, but it can also be translated as just women in general. Okay, I think you can make a pretty strong case that the ESV actually gets it wrong. ESV translated, translates it wives. I think it should be translated women in general. Let me give you my reasons. First, Paul uses the same root word gune several times in 1 Timothy. And this is one of those words with two possible meanings. So you have to look at the context. But in almost every other situation in 1 Timothy, it is obvious that it's supposed to be women and not specifically wives. Also, the possessive pronoun there at the beginning of this verse is not there in the original Greek. It's added by certain translations. And if you look up different translations, you'll see the differences and you'll see the debate here. But it's added by certain translations to help emphasize their interpretation that it should be wives instead of women. Uh, but here's the thing. Paul could have easily added the word in Greek there, uh, autan, which is translated as their, or idion, which means their own, to clarify himself. But he doesn't do that. And so I think that implies that Paul intended this to be women. And I think specifically women deacons. Now, let me go on. Third, if, if we take into account that the word there is not there and gynekos can be translated as women rather than wives in this verse, it very much mirrors verse 8. Okay, look back at verse 8. So it literally would read, women likewise must be dignified. And then he lists off three qualifications that deal with self-control. It's almost identical to what we saw back in verse 8. Finally, I think it's significant that Paul never mentions any kind of qualifications for elders' wives earlier in the chapter. Why would the wives of deacons need qualifications but not the wives of elders? Now, there's a lot more that I could say in favor of women deacons, and I know this is highly controversial, but if you want to go deeper, you can actually pick up this book. And uh, I've got a copy here. We may be out of copies back there, 
but you're welcome to grab this one, and, and uh, I've actually got another one at home if we need more. But there's an appendix in here that deals directly with that question, can women be deacons? And I would highly recommend, if you want to go deeper into it, take a look at the, the argument that he makes, and he, he agrees that, that uh, uh, women should be deacons. Okay, so, like I said, feel free to email me on that one and ask questions. We can go into more detail. We don't have time today, though. So let's go on. Look uh, at verse 12. Let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their own household well. So this is what I think is going on. Verses 8 through 10, we have general qualifications for all deacons. Verse 11 gives you qualifications specific for women, and then verse 12 gives you qualifications specifically for men. Again, the word each in verse 12, where it says, let deacons each, that word each is not in the original text. Again, I think that's added by the translators to bolster their interpretation of the, the word wives. Uh, and, and the phrase Husband of one wife can be more literally translated as a one-woman man. And so I don't think that Paul is disqualifying all divorced men from being deacons here. I don't think that's his intent. I think he's simply saying that if you're a married man, you should be a faithful husband and a faithful father. Manage your household well. Verse 13. And so that ends the section on the, on the qualifications. In verse 13, we have this promise. For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. So there's two promises here. First, you have the promise of a good standing. Deacons should be honored by the church because they're a blessing to the church. We're going to talk more about that in a second. But also deacons, not only are they a blessing to the church, I believe that the church is actually blessing them. When a church recognizes deacons and ordains them into ministry, God grants them confidence and boldness in the faith. God bolsters their faith as the church affirms them into that, that role. And I think well, this is what we have back in Acts chapter 6 and 7. Again, so Stephen was ordained into the ministry, and then he speaks boldly the gospel, even though he's about to be stoned. Now, I want to finish up this mini-series by, by really talking about how deacons are truly a blessing given to the church by God. And so we've already talked about how deacons help unify the church, how they help meet tangible needs within the congregation, which frees up the elders, the pastors, to focus on the spiritual needs. We, we've talked about how deacons are lead servants. Deacons really help to fill in the cracks so that people don't slip through. Deacons are, are the ones that make sure that those who typically are forgotten are not forgotten. Deacons often selflessly serve in places others don't even typically think about serving or don't want to serve. Often what deacons do never gets noticed, but their fingerprints are everywhere. I love how... Smethurst ends his book. Listen to what he says. He says, faithful deacons should be able to see their fingerprints on every sermon that's preached because they can say, our pastor would not be able to do this or not nearly so effectively if I were not doing this. Faithful deacons should see their fingerprints in the unity of their congregation 
for which Jesus prayed in John 17, 22. They can say, today, there are brothers and sisters in this church living together in love and harmony who otherwise wouldn't be here. Indeed, faithful deacons should see their fingerprints in the welfare of all the flock and in the church's worldwide witness. It's because they can say, because I saw that need and rose to meet it, the elders were freed to focus on shepherding eternal souls. Because I recruited those volunteers, our pastor didn't have to spend his Saturday doing it. Because I deferred to the elders' collective wisdom on that complex issue, a younger deacon learned the value of humble respect. Respect. Because I loved the senior saint in her distress, she was lifted from her despair and made more eager to see Christ's face. Because I quelled that conflict, the gospel was able to go forth in power. moving in that direction. I'm also excited as I look out right now and see many people who have the heart of a deacon and new faces that, that maybe they haven't been tested yet, but I can see down the road that they would serve in that capacity. And so this is what's going to happen at our next members meeting that we'll be announcing here shortly. We're going we're gonna to talk about the next steps and how we're going to go about enlisting deacons and deploying deacons. And, and many of these deacons, it's not that their job's going to change at all. They're, they're just going to be, uh, we're, we're going to notice them <laughs> and, and, and say thank you and ordain them into the ministry that they've already been doing. But I also look forward to the day where more deacons that rise up as we see more needs arise. And, and I think there's probably some needs right now that deacons could fill that role kind of fill in the cracks so that nobody slips through them. And so I want to pray as we end this mini-series that God would give us wisdom uh, to do just that, that he would help us deploy these deacons and that they would be a huge blessing to our ministry. You pray with me. Father, once again, I thank you for your word. I thank you for giving us the, the, the blessing of deacons as an official office within the church, and I pray that you would help us have wisdom as we deploy deacons, help us pick wisely. I pray that you would raise up more and more people with the heart of a deacon, whether we recognize them as a deacon or not. I pray that all of us, uh, you, you would strengthen our faith and help us to rest in your righteousness so that we would be extraordinary in the ordinary, what you've called us to be. And so I thank you for Christ's power working in us, and I pray that as we celebrate communion today, our, our faith would be strengthened as we are reminded of the sacrifice that you have, have given for us and so that we could live for eternity with you. I pray that you would just continue to unite us and that you would continue for those who are just struggling with being uh, just scared and, and, and or hurt or just struggling to, with depression and, and just our, our world is so confusing right now. Uh, 
uh, I pray that you would help us help one another and that you would help strengthen us as a church body. And I pray for those around the world right now that are hurting. I pray that you would help raise up your, your church as a place of truth and a place of light that would shine in the midst of the darkness. For your glory, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.